Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and welcome into the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined today by Stephen Lewis and Matthew Wesley Williams. So, hello. Greetings. Good to be with you, Lauren. Hey, Lauren. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Well, uh, let me give a quick word about our guests, plural. Stephen Lewis is the president of the Forum for Theological Exploration. And uh, Matthew Wesley Williams is the president of the Interdenominational Theological Center. Are those both in Georgia? Yes, both in Atlanta. I thought so. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, welcome. Uh, what else would you like our, our listeners to know about you? Well, I think um, what will be important for the sake of our conversation is to know that um, this book came out of a long period of collaboration uh, between Stephen and I, as we uh, worked and walked together as colleagues and co-conspirators uh, at the Forum for Theological Exploration, formerly known as the Fund for Theological Education. Uh, we worked for a period of about 15 years together. Um, and much of what you find uh, in this book, Another Way, is um, uh, uh, sharing the learning and the journey uh, and what we what we know thus far by heart <laughs> as a result of those experiments that we were in uh, over that over that long period of time. Great, great. Stephen, how about you? Yeah, I think what I would just say is that we both are um, students of organizations and the ways in which um, we try to structure and build and shape and form the kind of organization that allows us to do our best work. I think, you know, too often um, as humans, we are constantly being um, required to compete with machines and to act as if we are machines. And so in the 21st century, what does it mean to build the kinds of organizations that are grounded in the foundations of the care um, disciplines that we lift up that allows us to do our best work. It allows us to recognize that, you know, that we need, um, opportunities to gather and also respite and those kinds of things. So I would offer that. Well, I wish I want to change the entire direction of the podcast now and just talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we will <laughs> talk about at least some of that. Well, um, I share with our listeners, if you don't mind, uh, whichever order you want to go in, just a little bit about your journey of faith, um, how you came to faith and what that looks like today. So um, my, my journey of faith actually begins, and I think we will probably both talk about it in this way, that our journeys of faith begin before we began. Uh, and, um, for me, <clears throat> I was, uh, born into, uh, a milieu and a household, um, that understood 
that, that did not separate what it means to follow in the way of Jesus apart from what it means um, to establish beloved community, to build uh, communities in which uh, all God's people thrive and are able to partake in abundance. And what that meant uh, for my people in my context is that um, my, 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 my parents met as student organizers in, in Operation Breadbasket, which was a Northern economic project of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, and so uh, when I was, I, I call myself a denominational mutt <laughs> because uh, my family, we've been all over the map. I was born into the Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, ba baptized and licensed Baptist first sermon and much of my early experiences in ministry in the United Church of Christ, uh, or ordained elder in the Presbyterian church, all in black church settings. Um, but what, what's common in, in all of those settings also is the, um, the ethic and the understanding of faith that connects very intimately um, Jesus and justice. Uh, and that, um, that what it means to be a follower in the way of Jesus means that you are uh, doing what it takes to make sure that the most vulnerable among us um, are, are well cared for and that the, the systems that would try folks underfoot are, um, are called into accountability. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Stephen, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in many ways, I love what Matthew said, which is this idea that um, we stand on the shoulders of uh, a long lineage of people who have come before us, um, who prayed and um, who did all the things that you think that faithful people do in many ways, whatever, you know, we are the, we as a generation and we as particular individual loved ones are the answer to many prayers um, for those who came before us. And so um, our faith journey, or at least mine, is one thinking about those who came before me, my ancestors, you know, my great, my, you know, my, my grands, my greats and my great greats, and those who um, have stood before me, um, before me on this planet, and who have tried to wrestle with what it means to be faithful in um, who they are in their relationship to the environment, who they are in relationship to each other and who they are in relationship to the eternal. I grew up in a um, in a um, in a large, affluent uh, African American church, uh, Baptist church within um, Charlotte, North Carolina, Friendship Missionary Baptist Church, and it was an, an, a church that was always um, maybe articulated in different ways, but was always committed to the ways in which our faith and our witness um, spoke to con to the conditions and the concerns of our people in the larger community. Um, and those who are in need. And so um, I was in, a, in an environment where you could uh, ask questions. It was a place for curiosity and um, being inquisitive and also um, wrestling with the, the writers and the, uh, of, of the, of the texts and, um, and the stories that we've been uh, told and trying to make sense, make God sense out of our ordinary um, experiences about what it means to be um, African-American, people of faith, Christian, uh, within this long history that we find in the South and particularly um, within, um, within the Americas. Hmm. 
I'm curious if I can uh, put the put you on the spot here. Uh, who would be a uh, give me if you don't mind sharing a name of someone uh, who you stand on their shoulders. Like I think when you said that, what immediately comes to mind for me is I'm in a different theological place, but my father uh, would be one that I would think of. You know, I think both my parents. I can think like a long string of pastors who have been influential in my life, even though I. I might feel differently theologically than them. I still kind of appreciate the investment they made in my life. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. So, I, of course, I would say my parents, but I also write in the book. I stand on the shoulders of um, Mother Pearson, uh, Mary Pearson, you know, who may not even had a, you know, um, a GDD, let alone a high school diploma, but she was a woman who was. Um, intelligent beyond her years. Uh, she was a woman of deep, devout faith. And while we may even have, you know, a, a different trajectory, um, it is because of her prayers. It is because of who she, who she was and how she showed up and what she um, prayed on behalf of, even myself, that I am where I am today. And so uh, Matthew and I talk about this kind of concept of Ubuntu, this notion that, you know, um, I am because we are like we are not kind of um, apolitical, ahistorical individuals, but we are who we are because of a large community um, that has shaped us and formed us and our identities about who we become today. Even if it has a different trajectory than what some members of a community might um, lean or you know lean toward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for this question, Lauren. Um, I, I certainly <clears throat> stand on the shoulders of my parents and 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 grandparents and great grandparents and those in my blood lineage. I, I often say my father um, and my mother were the ones who um, uh, discipled me early on, showed me the practices of, showed me um, by their own example spiritual practices. Um, through which I gained my own access to a, a, a direct line um, <laughs> to spirit and to um, a, a relationship with the Lord. So um, that and 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 a relationship with my my heritage, right? My my, my parents discipled me in that way, and so um, f I'll always be grateful for having those models, but. Again, like Stephen said, there's a wider village, right? And so for me, it was uh, Deacon, uh, re later Reverend Vernon McDaniel and, and, and Mother Ina Sandifer, who were the first ones to call out gifts in me. And in fact, I was just reflecting on um, the first person who ever uh, said to me, boy, you gonna be a preacher, <laughs> was Miss Sandifer. Uh, she was standing at that Sunday school felt bored, putting up a, a depiction of Noah and the ark and turned around to me and looked at me and said, boy, you're going to be a preacher. But it's, it's folks like that who believed and took young people seriously, um, had their own deep and profound faith, um, who, who invested in me. Um, and, and then there are folks like folks who, who also crafted, uh, who helped to craft that heritage before us. Right. So, um, there are folks like Tom Skinner, uh, um, in, in the evangelical movement who was the, the who wrote black and free who helped folks reckon, reckon with the question of can I be black and Christian what an absurd question but because of the way that Christianity had been so colonized and captive 
um, to white norms and, and standards of, of um, uh, cultural standards, that, that he raised that question and broke open the imagination of what it meant to be black and Christian. Um, folks like Tom Skinner, Willie B. Jemison, uh, A. Lincoln James, um, you know, other folks who were uh, faith and spirit rooted activists like Ella Baker and Septima Clark and Fannie Lou Hamer, um, folks who really embodied uh, what it means to be people of faith, um, but also people of struggle. Hmm. Well, we'll get to it here in a minute, but I'm already hearing in your words something you spoke about in the book, just about how call is a communal thing. And I'm hearing that yes. already in your in your words, but let's save that. Let's save that for uh, here in a bit. Share if you can uh, a spiritual practice that's been meaningful for you, or that you might recommend to others. Yeah. So for me, there there's a uh, a nature reserve here in the city of Atlanta, not too far away. It has uh, one of the um, largest rivers in the southeast, uh, the Chattahoochee. And, you know, um, routinely, if not, um, yeah, routinely, at least weekly, um, before the sunrise or, or, or shortly thereafter, you know, I go down there and I spend time um, walking the trails in silence and listening for nature and listening and, and, and uh, communing with spirit. And, um, you know, as God said, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And so... Um, what does it mean to to recognize um, your uh, communal sense of oneness uh, with God's creation, and to to be able to just kind of um, allow my prayers and my thoughts to be poured into the river, and to see the ways in which the river, metaphorically and symbolically, um, is a way in which those um, ideas and those prayers get carried forth through the currents, and the way that they have to navigate. Um, to the destination for where they go. So that's one um, meditative spiritual practice that I would look at. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, there are a number that come, a number of, of practices that come to mind. Um, but what I think would be important to, to lift up is that um, when we think about spiritual practices in the same way that when we think about spirituality generally, they we tend to default to the individual right um and uh what what just came up for me was that one of one of my spiritual practices is therapy <laughs> uh right it is um on a on a consistent basis sitting in dialogue with um a licensed clinical pastoral caregiver uh, not just a pastor, right, but a licensed clinical pastoral caregiver who has that kind of training, um, who can who brings, um, um, you know, a level of expertise to the stuff of psychology and theology um, and to keep track of my shadow. Right. To keep track of what's going on uh, in and around me um, such that I maintain um, a, a relationship with the landscape of my inner life um, through relationship with another person that's helping to guide me and act as a kind of Sherpa uh, to that inner landscape. And so um, spiritual practices can be shared. 
spiritual practices should be. And, and I, I would say in, in many of the best cases happen in dialogue, in community, um, where two or more are gathered. Yeah. Well, thanks guys for sharing that, uh, sharing that with, with us, I guess. Um, let's move on. And I'm really excited to just talk more about the content of your book. So I invited Stephen and, and Matthew on to talk about this book they co-wrote with Dory. I'm not sure how to say that name. Greneko Baker. Greneko Baker. Greneko mm -hmm. Baker. It's called another way living and leading change on purpose. So this was given to me, uh, as a gift. And I, you know, I, I have stacks of books and I just get to them when I get to them and I got to this and I was like, oh man, I can't put this down. Mm. And there's so much good stuff in the book. Uh, so I guess the good news is here, uh, hopefully we'll just whet folks' appetite to buy the book because um, they talk about this process called care, which uh, I'll have you all introduce just shortly here. Um, but we're going to kind of dive in just to a little, a little section of the book. Um, but first, kind of talk about talk about the book, talk about the care process, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, the way that I mean, the way that this book came to us, I mean, in many ways, is you know, I would say that you know, it was it's, it was the timing of the book wanting to to be written and, and to write itself through um, Matthew and I and kind of our own sense of deep longing. You know, um, we, I don't share this in the story, but, I mean, share this in the book, but one of the things is that I remember Matthew and I used to share an office and <clears throat> he came in one day and to the office, I was like, dang, you, you you look like you need to go to bed. Look like, you know, like you just, <laughs> and he's like, man. And part of this is realizing that, you know, uh, he, you know, as a young professional, whatever, like what we realize is that uh, the ways in which we work are not sustainable. And knowing that, you know, that there has to be kind of a, another way to be, um, let alone another way to do. And so those were kind of like the, the, the initial kind of inklings, I think, that were behind this piece. We had a number of different exposures, um, you know, being a facilitator within the courage and renewal work, um, thinking about um, our own kind of rich traditions of the kind of um, meditative uh, traditions um, within the black church uh, where, you know, folks are really inviting the spirit, thinking about um, the kind of mystic traditions like Howard Thurman, who is a legendary educator and uh, Christian mystic who would, who would, who will often invite us to, I think Matthew said it best in his previous remarks about tending to our inner landscape. Not just attending to our inner landscape, but also attending to the landscape that is between you and I. And the landscape that is beyond us. And recognizing that um, the rhythm and the frequency by which we operate in the ways that we need to operate will allow us, um, can be a resource to us in the ways in which we feel called to lead. And so, you know, um, and then finally, I would just say the other piece of this emerged out of this whole idea that a lot of people's kind of espouse values are not always aligned with their kind of um, 
inner values and organizations want to be better leaders want to be better but we always have a challenge of trying to align those inner and outer values and so it's out of that that you know these became the kind of foundational kind of tenets for um what became of care and i'll let matthew kind of speak further on that sure so um to, to put it succinctly i would say that this book is a product of deep dissatisfaction and that may be a mild way of, of, <laughs> of describing that. But, but Stephen and I both um, were very much raised and socialized in a noble tradition um, of the black church that we would call um, uh, a tradition that is uh, social justice, prophetic, uh, prophetically oriented. And, um, and but we were both also socialized into um, leadership and ministry uh, in ways that uh, left us both at, at some point saying, there's got to be another way to do this. Um, but what Stephen described was me coming into the office on, let's say a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning, um, looking haggardly and, and just exhausted because I had been running myself ragged, um, you know, in pastoring and, and, and doing the work that we were doing together um, out of a kind of um, martyr complex <laughs> feeling as though uh, to be faithful meant I need to I need to kill myself to prove um, that, that that I'm faithful and I'm about the business. And, um, the, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which um, some of our most noble impulses and intentions get wrapped up in very toxic models uh, of how to implement those intentions. And, and what we were trying to do was to really reckon with the ways in which, you know, those those models were having an impact on us and those around us that we could witness. And we were trying to find new ways to um, not just uh, produce, um, you know, uh, good results in leadership and service and ministry, but also um, to engage in uh, healing and life-giving processes uh, that that um, uh, that help to, to to generate life and life abundantly in, in communities. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, again, for folks listening, buy the book. Another way, uh, I think you'll really enjoy and really find challenging and meaningful the care process they talk about. Uh, but let's dive in a little deeper. So part of this kind of care process, you have a chapter. I don't even remember which chapter it is. I just had so much stuff highlighted in it. Um, was it chapter three or four? I don't remember. But you spend a, a good bit talking about purpose, call, and vocation. And I I found that 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 section of the book just really meaningful. And I really appreciate the way that you kind of separated out or or delineated between purpose call and vocation so can one of you share just a little bit about that well before i'm, a, I'm going to defer to steve on that um but before we do that uh, we've been using the word care and it, it may be helpful just to back up and, and outline what that stands for so um you know what we're referring to here when we talk about care care is used in the book as an acronym um, and it stands for uh, four disciplines or practices of community 
that helped to create a different kind of environment and um, um, and space for a different kind of reality to be born and emerge among us, right? And so CARE stands for Creating Hospitable Space, Asking Self-Awakening Questions, Reflecting Theologically Together, and Enacting Our Next Most Faithful Step. Now, those are four disciplines that really ought to be taken together. They're not new. We didn't create them, but we did curate them in a way to create a, um, uh, a, a way of shaping experiences that, that um, not only enable us to talk about another way, but also to experience another way such that people get the experience of beloved community, kingdom, um, and, and an alternative reality in their bones. Um, and, and so that's the kind of experience that we're inviting folks to in the book. So that's what CARE stands for. Good. Thanks for, so, thanks for sharing that. So Stephen, this, mm -hmm. this call vocation and purpose that falls underneath the sea, am I remembering correctly? Well, no, I mean, all, it, it, all of it is in service to this question, which, um, the late Cava Geneva, uh, Cannon uh, poses, um, which is, what is this, what is the work that our soul must have? And you can ask that individually, you can ask that communally, you can ask that organization. Now what your mission statement is, now what your vision is, but individually and collectively, what is the work our soul must have? What is the work that my soul must have? And to do that means that you have to step back and create. You have, you have to step out of the hamster wheel that you may be on in life's work in order, in order to create space to even begin to explore this big self-awakening question. And to do that in community with other people. And, and part of what Matthew and I and Dory are kind of pushing back on is this of this kind of hyper individualism which says that for somehow some way you know I can just kind of create my own purpose what I want to be and, and oftentimes that's nothing but one's aspirations one's desires and there's nothing wrong with that but aspirations and desires are not necessarily the answer to what is the work my soul must have or I soul must have and so um, this idea of purpose and vocation and call is really trying to answer the this bigger question. Um, why are you here, Lord? No, not not why are you here on this podcast, but like why are you taking up space <laughs> in this moment in time within the community that you are part of, and what is that community's work? in the world to bring about a new heaven, a new earth, um, a new vision for what it means to be a life and a community of belonging, a community that honors our dignity and a community that is trying to right the wrongs of our history, our present, and maybe even possibly our future. Like, so, so part of this is about like, this idea of purpose is really about this kind of larger kind of tell-offs why are we even here at this moment in time? What is our gifts and what are our work? And how then do we become the medicine that our communities and the larger society is longing and thirsting for? 
That's why I write that, you know, if there's an aspect of the future that, that mourns, if you and I don't take the opportunity with our community to actually explore this question. So purpose, so purpose is about that. So then when you think about call, call are kind of these kind of episodic moments in our journey in communion with, with one another, maybe even from familial or maybe organizationally, maybe, you know, in a larger kind of, you know, uh, faith community or even a cultural community where we think about the ways in which we may be called to participate in our community as mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and doctors and I mean, like they're, these, they're episodic though. They're time bound episodic, meaning that it may not be your entire life, but at least for a, po a moment in time or whatever that you are called at this moment to do a particular thing. Now, some are some are long lasting, like, you know, parenthood and some may be more short term in that regards. But it's this idea that callings, you can have multiple calls within a lifetime to multiple different things. And then vocation in, in many ways is about how the community looks back through the rearview mirror and see how the hand of the of the eternal has been choreographing and orchestrating and conspiring with us to get us to where we might be in a participatory way and contributing to the larger well-being and the good of society. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, when you said the thing about the future mourns that I, that sparked my memory from the book and it's something like that, uh, you know, you not doing something that you're called to, the future is mourning that that doesn't happen. And I thought that's such a beautiful image. I'll share uh, just right now, and if I'm understanding these three right, like literally as we're recording this, um, the church that I started and pastored uh, for three years is closing, and our last service is tomorrow. Mm. And it's obviously quite a quite a lot, quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and this this chapter was so meaningful for me just because I think about like my call was to that church and and I would say like my vocation is a pastor and that vocation is not changing and I would say my purpose is to to share God's love and and justice and, and the gospel of mm -hmm. Jesus Christ about God redeeming the world through Jesus and uh so that's why I just loved this chapter because uh, it really spoke mm. to me in a in a, a time when I needed it, to be frank. Mm, mm, mm. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. Um, let me ask too about this. Let me see if I can find it. the 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 thing you said about the religion, and I don't know what it is in the last twenty years, and maybe it's just kind of white evangelical Christianity. They kind of bang on the word religion a lot, and I really appreciate the way you draw. Uh, you talk about religion connecting us to the mutuality of life, reconnecting us. Can you elaborate on that more? Well, yeah, I mean, part of it is about this. Um, it's the root word, right? It's, it's, the, etymo it's the etymology of, of the word, which, um, which means to bind, reconnect, remember um, us to that which is within us, between us, and beyond us. And so religion, at least etymologically speaking, 
is ultimately about the ways in which we are remembered, not just in terms of remembering as a recalling, but how we actually remembered in terms of being reconnected and rejoined, um, you know, to the, you know, to the, to the God of our faith, you know, to um, the God that is within us individually and collectively, and the God that is in front of us, calling us to conspire with God um, as followers of the way, to participate in what God is doing. And that has nothing to do with dogma. That has nothing to do with your particular religious rights. That has nothing to do with your particular perspective of what the color of the carpet should be. It has nothing to do with the types of fights that you're having in a congregational setting. Like the word, that word is really about the ways in which we're reconnected at a deeper level, at a profound level, um, to who we are and who, to who we are to each other, our relationship to the environment and our relationship to the eternal. Yeah, thanks so much. Matthew, anything you want to add there? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think Steve has summed it up quite well. <laughs> well, how about you take this one? I found the, the little section on passion. Just, man, that spoke mm. to me. Um, so you're right about kind of like, what about passion? And if I'm understanding like correctly, you, you kind of say that sometimes passion is not enough. Um, and yeah, Talk more about that, and I'll perhaps might ask some follow up questions. Well, I, I would actually defer to Stephen on this one as well. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I'll start and, and ask Stephen to to, um, to hit cleanup <laughs> on this. But um, I, I think what we would say is that passion is necessary but insufficient, right? Um, it, it's, it's the, it's the arousal of our interest, of our anger, of our delight that gets us going and gives us some clues as to what we may care about, right? That's absolutely necessary because that kind of stuff, and passion is not a fleeting interest, right? Passions, passion is the stuff that makes your bones itch, <laughs> right? And it's important to pay attention to to um, to that. I mean, I, I remember speaking to a, um, a a mentor about my own vocational journey, and he listened to me for a while, and he said, "Matt, I want I want to encourage you to pay attention to your delight structure, right?" And what he helped me to see was that that delight structure can be stimulated and aroused uh, not just in moments of joy and celebration, but also in moments of deep dissatisfaction, disappointment, and despair, right? Because it, again, it gives me some deep clues as to what I care about. Now, why is that not enough, right? Because you see it all the time among young people, as I saw it in my own life, is that there's there's a such thing as passion burnout, right? And so ju just uh, kind of uh, passionately following uh, an impulse without um, uh, adequate inquiry into one's own capacity, skill, supports, the community, um, 
what it actually takes to address the issue, whether we understand the systems that gave rise to the issue that we can, all of those kinds of things are absolutely necessary. What was also necessary is to recognize our own finitude, our own limitations. And, and one of the ways in which we run into passion burnout is that we, um, we, uh, we run the race before we realize it was a marathon. <laughs> right and and so not recognizing our own limitations in 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 relationship to the to the the cause or whatever it may be uh, often means that we're going it alone probably don't have uh adequate um um guidance mentorship peer support whatever it may be um that that put that creates the kinds of conditions for us to uh, last for the long haul um, um, in relationship to, to others who are also doing similar work. Man, it's so good. Um, you talk about, y'all talk about in the book that passion for a cause can cost too much and it's important to steward one's own health and well-being. And I just, you kind of alluded to it, Matthew, um, it, Stephen, if you want to follow up with, I think I'm thinking here about kind of what am I willing to sacrifice? What are the limits and when does it cost just too much? Because mm -hmm. yeah. I just I guess before you answer that, because I just say, like, at least from my childhood and kind of formative Christian years, it's kind of like it's kind of seemed like I was inherently taught that you're supposed to just give it all at, at, at any cost. And I'm what I'm reading is it seems like not quite. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah. So let, let me, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch a quote to you and then let you uh, let you kind of run with it. But in the, in the book, in the book, what we talk about, um, particularly on page fifty two, Audre Lorde writes, "Caring for myself is not self indulgence. Um, it is self preservation, and that is an act of political wi uh, warfare." And then we go on to say that Jesus' call eventually led him to crucifixion. That was an act of the state, not his calling that killed him. Yeah, that Martin was King, pretty wow Martin, for me. Martin Luther King followed that call and it put him at odds with the powers that be. It wasn't his calling that killed him, but rather the forces that could not abide that social change that he and other civil rights move, uh, movement leaders embodied. So what would you say to that, uh, Matt? To <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, I would say that the the very unhealthy um, workaholism um, that Stephen and I were encountering, where we said there's got to be another way, were drawn. That was um, those ways of being were very much drawn from this idea that in order to be faithful, you have to be a martyr, and it and is drawn from a way of, of reading social life and sacred literature, such that we we see. Um, we we really let the Roman Empire off the hook <laughs> and, and fail to recognize that that um, like like Stephen said, we pay more attention to Jesus's death than we do to his life. And in so and in so doing, miss the model because we're so caught up in the crucifixion and the the um, the, the 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 glory, the strange glory of that torture. Um, and so we end up torturing ourselves as a way of trying to prove ourselves faithful. That is not what God called us to do. That's not that's not to say that uh, we ought not be diligent, hardworking, 
um, for what it is that we're called to do. By 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 no means are we saying anything uh, in in that vicinity. But what we are saying is that there, whereas on the surface, the workaholism and the martyrdom complexes that many of us carry into ministry seems like we're doing it for the for the work. We're doing it for the cause. We're doing it for the ministry. If you scratch just beneath the surface, what you'll recognize is that we're actually doing it for our own ego. Hmm, you're not wrong. We're doing it for our own sense of importance, and, and we're doing it really to prove something to somebody, most times ourselves, or, or someone that we respect, that we're actually worthy. Now, what, what happens differently when we actually accept that God created us worthy? Hmm. Right. And that Jesus actually did pay it all. <laughs> what, what, what happens when we can accept that fact? It, it leads us into a place where we can actually work differently and work from a sustainable source of energy. That is that is not the need to prove ourselves to someone, including God, um, that we're actually worthy of what it is that we're called to be doing. Wow. And and I would just add that you know in 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 organizational life, um, particularly in ministry, you know we're, we're we're passionate about the ministry, and you know we we will go and skip uh, vacations and other types of things or whatever because we are trying to you know be faithful to this or whatever. And then you hear people who end up taking a sabbatical. Matthew and I always talk about you know sabbaticals are good, but they're insufficient. Sabbaticals really speak to, um, really, really uh, speak to the, the 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 harmful ways in which our institutions, the toxic ways in which our institutions are not designed for us. So our institutions are such a way where we run ragged in them. Then we got to get a sabbatical to get some reprieve, and then we return back to the same institutions that basically required us to get a sabbatical in the first place. So part of the question is like, how do we create these kinds of organizations? that don't require us to give everything of our lives because our life is more than our organizations. Our life is more than just the ministry. Our life is more than just what happens on Sunday. And, and what's the, here's what's really important about that. Again, scratching a little bit beneath the surface, what the church would have to admit is that it's been co-opted by industry. And we've taken our models of ministry and service and and, 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 uh, and common life of faith from from industry uh, and from these ideas that we have to be twenty four seven productive uh, in order to again be worthy to be valuable or what have you. And if we are if we recognize that we are part of God's creation as human beings, um, and and even our organizations, our organisms, there is no other being in creation that doesn't operate according to seasons. It's not always harvest time, right? Our, if, if we are parts of God's, God's creation, we operate in cycles. We need sleep to be well. <laughs> In fact, the, 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 the product, uh, the result of what we do is better when we're rested, when we're in our right minds, when we're not uh, 
you know, using all kinds of external substances to to uh, regulate our nervous systems. When we have, when we when we are attentive to the way in which God designed us as a, as a part of God's creation, so that we recognize we are not machines, right? We are actually uh, living souls that breathe God's breath and require rest, even as God did on the seventh day, <laughs> right? So if God can't rest, why can't we? If God can. Why can't we? Yeah. Well, this is such good stuff, and uh, I'm, I'm especially, I don't know, convicted is the right word, just because our listeners obviously can't see this, but I don't know if you can, Matthew and Stephen. My son, little son, is here right on my knee. So yes. If, if you hear some cartoons, that's what it is. <laughs> and I just think, like, you know, I can't. I appreciate what you're saying, uh, Stephen, about how organizations need to be better structured so it's not just all cost on the individual but i i also i definitely hear uh the words you're saying matthew about how we as individuals need to do a better job too uh, a few episodes back i think it was in season five i had uh a, um a care professional bethany dearborn heiser and she wrote a book on kind of burnout from just overworking and i remember commenting with her about how like i'd see other pastors like say hey i'm gonna go take a prayer hike today and be like how ridiculous is that <laughs> you know if i'm not nose the grindstone like matthew said then right. i'm not being an efficient worthy pastor disciple whatever uh so it's both sides are are important and i appreciate y'all uh bringing to those Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask one more question here before we take a break, uh, or you know, we'll say one more question. It might lead to more, but we'll see. Um, one of the things that I found most intriguing about this chapter was the way that you talk about um, call. I think it was call and purpose, right? Not just being a, a individual thing, mm-hmm. the communal aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Well. In, in a broader sense, everything that we're considering in this book attempts to operate from a different starting point than Western rugged individualism, right? So everything that we consider in this book, whether it's leadership, vocation, call, um, um, purpose, discernment, all of those are commu- theological reflection all of those are communal enterprises. And, and, and I, I would say probably for the majority of human history <laughs> have been understood as such uh, until we get to, again, this uh, warped idea of the rugged individual. Um, but um, and that, that's certainly true um, in scripture, right? Um, so when you talk about call and purpose being a communal endeavor, the thing is, Every call takes place in context, right? And and um, how we come to uh, interpret and understand our individual um, um, trajectories and and ideas of of, of what um, you know we're we're called to do is always a matter is it's always uh, informed, I should say by the way a community understands itself right by the by the, the the vocational imagination of the community surrounding that individual 
and and that individual's uh, individual sense of purpose, passion, and call is really um, it really grows out of a milieu. It grows out of a seed bed. It grows out of the soil um, of a community, um, and in the best cases, it, it drives back to help to fertilize further the soil of that community to, 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 um, to contribute to it so that it might continue to, uh, to inspire the imagination of folks uh, coming after. So um, while we celebrate the callings and the service and the leadership of individuals, leadership is actually a communal quality that gets expressed in individuals. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, um, the gospel writers are not writing to individuals, they're writing to communities. Paul is not writing to an individual about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's not talking about individual person and the wonderful gifts. He's writing to a community. Communities are reading these letters. Communities are reading the gospel, right? And so... Um, Paul says, you know, does the eye say I don't have no need for the hand? I mean, like this this idea that, you know, like it's right there in the text. Like, you know, like like part of this is about really kind of reclaiming, you know, the priesthood of all believers. It didn't say the priesthood of one believer. And so this idea of this communal sense of um, being, I mean, even in Revelation, it's talking about, you know, these different churches, not individuals. And so part of it is recognize that we move and we operate within communities, at least, at least within, you know, within a faith context. And so communities are called. The church is, is a community of people who are called out to call others out. You, you know what I mean? So in, in that sense of whatever, we really are trying to recapture some of the things that are just in the DNA of what it means to be collectively God's people. Yeah, I'm writing that down. Uh, called out to call others out. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have I always have a good bit of notes, especially from y'all. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate this conversation. And uh, again, I really recommend for folks the book, Another Way, uh, living and leading change on purpose. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Stephen Lewis and Matthew Wesley Williams. And uh, I always tell folks you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what does that day look like? What do you want to do? That kind of thing. Well, I'll start by saying I would never never be and never want to be <laughs> Pope for a day. <laughs> but I, I guess if I was, if I was Pope for a day, the first thing I would do would be to abolish the role. <laughs> that seems to be a popular that, answer on here sometimes. Is that right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Steven. If, if I was Pope for the day, I would, um, I would fund, pray for, do rituals for more disruption. Awesome. How about a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to mm -hmm. life? Wow. 
Wow. See, that's why I give you these questions in advance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the first one that comes to mind is actually sitting above my desk. And there's, there's two um, that are sitting above my desk. I consider them my patron ancestors in this work. Um, they are Howard Thurman, Howard Washington Thurman, um, and Ella Josephine Baker. Um, and Ms. Baker is not typically considered a Christian leader. Um, I, I, I see her certainly as one, um, having coming out of the tradition of, of black Baptist women, um, in North Carolina, um, who really have been historically the engine uh, in the backbone of the black church. Um, all of the work that she did in the 20th century from her work with the NAACP to Southern Christian Leadership Conference to the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came out of the milieu of um, what, what Ruby Sales would call black folk religion situated in the black church. And so uh, Howard Thurman, for sure, um, I would love to have a conversation with him um, at the, 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 the theologian and the mystic and the, just the, um, um, the mentor that he was to so many freedom fighters, um, during his lifetime, um, and Ella Baker, uh, they, they were the patron ancestors who, when I was in my twenties and burned out for the second and third time really came and got me and showed me another way. And so I would want to talk to them in person. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's good, man. That's good. Um, for me, I think I would, uh, one person that I would say is um, Charles Mason. Mm, man. <laughs> Bishop C.H. Mason. Charles Mason is the founder of the Coded Church. But he was an individual that was a a mystic in his own right and he knew the tools of the spirit he knew he he knew he knew how to work with spirit and he also knew how to conjure mm -hmm. in order to bring about healing and so um but the other thing too is that he was he was a man that was that that knew the kind of integration of um the spirituality of the, the spirituality that black folks brought to these shores and the spirituality that black folks encountered in the ways in which he, you know, he, he stirred that and conjured with that and created um, the Church of God in Christ. So he would be one figure. And the other one, I can't even remember the name. Um, Matthew, who is the uh, who's the sister who was like uh, the black political genius, civil rights, got beat down a lot, um, started the freedom, democratic movement. Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer, I think, teaches us a lot about um, tenacity, persistence, and resilience, and the idea that faith is not apolitical. Mm -hmm. That is because of them we have, we, we, we at least been able to set the kind of realities that we have for black and brown folks here today. If it were not for these faith leaders like her and so many others who were, who, who were, who were pushing um, the powers that be to create new policies and procedures, um, we may not have the type of legislation 
that has allowed um and that that has been that has allowed and afforded um black folks their kind of rights that they have today in this country and so Fannie Lou Hamer would be another conversation partner that I would love to um yeah it's great it's great uh what do you think history will remember from our current time and place Ooh. yeah remind you these are supposed to be quick hitters <laughs> well they're supposed to be quick hitters but they i mean these these are heavy questions so this well i'll say it like this you know i'm i'm a i'm a history buff and i look back on moments like reconstruction or the great depression or um you know the what's considered the civil rights movement between 1954 that what what Taylor Branch will call the king years right between 1954 and 1968 although we know there's a longer movement um i i look as a history buff on those as pivotal moments that if they would have gone a different way my life and our our collective lives would have been different this is certainly one of those moments where my grandchildren are going to look back and say you know, granddad, what what was it like to live during a pandemic when no one could come out of their houses? How did you all live through that? What was it like to be in a pandemic and witness police brutality uh, on a on a, a mass level and to, and to have social media such that for the first time, um, you know, you're getting or, or, or th this is one of the first periods in which you're getting kind of daily dispatches um from local places around uh state sanctioned violence what was that like what did you do what were you involved in this is one of those moments um and you know no there is no real inevitable future we've got choices to make but um i, I think when we look back on this moment this is going to be tantamount to those moments that i think back on um as a as a child of the 20th century wow I think what I would say quickly is that I don't know, um, to be honest with you, Lauren. I think um, with with you know with the rise of dis disinformation and the continuation of sanitizing history and her story, um, it depends on which strand of history that you follow. Um, is there a pandemic? Is there a virus? Is there a need for you know, vaccination, those kind of things or whatever. I mean, that like th th that will be a part of the history as well, right? And so um, I, I really don't know what history will be remembered because I don't know the kind of political machinery that will um, try to shape and actually will fight at all costs to shape it in a particular way, just as the colonial settlers did uh, once, you know, a long time ago. Man, these are good answers, good answers. Um, how about something hopeful, hopes for the future of Christianity? <laughs> my, my hope for the future of Christianity is that, um, <laughs> it, I, I thought a lot about this question and my hope is that we at some point come to stop asking that question um recognizing that there are again there is no single future um that there are futures just as there are christianities 
And um, one of the things, it, you know, to, to, to be on the ground in communities uh, is, to, uh, is to recognize that uh, while we often speak in big church terms, um, what we call the church is so diverse, is so localized, um, and, and requires, um, you know, attention to the future of micro expressions of the church, wherever they are. So, um, my hope for the future, um, is that we recognize that there are futures, um, that we have, um, choices to make about how those things will unfold. Cause again, there's no one inevitable future for the whole of what we call Christianity. What I would say is that um, my hope is that um, those of us who say we're practicing Christianity are probably more or less practicing American civil religion, both in uh, Christian symbolism, language, um, and in ritual. And my hope is that um, the adolescent version of what we practice may grow up one day mm. and actually follow in the way of a young adult, person of color, born to a teenage mother, a lower socioeconomic status, who was at odds with the Roman Empire, who was brought on charges of sedition, that we will follow in his way, the one that we call Jesus. Well, uh, guys, I really appreciate your time today. I really appreciate you know, your book that you wrote with Dory and just hearing your perspectives today. So just want to really appreciate uh really want to say thank you for your time and just your words and uh, i know my son <laughs> appreciates that <laughs> <laughs> gotta, get, gotta get him going here soon but uh tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and your work listeners can find me at fteleaders.org uh fteleaders.org and we're on um twitter uh facebook instagram etc. So you can find us there. And uh, listeners can find me at uh, the ITC, the Interdenominational Theological Center, which is a historically black theological school here in the heart of Atlanta at, at itc.edu. itc.edu. And again, we're also on all of the socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you, have, you name it. And I'm pretty sure the book's probably available wherever books are sold, right? Another way. Yes. Living and leading change and change on purpose. So check it yes. out. Highly recommend it. And gentlemen, thanks again. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, may God's peace be with you. God bless you. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Thanks, Lon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again, and go in peace.